You know, we think about the worth of a man, worth of mankind. If we think about an individual person, man or woman, what would be the worth if we were to try to place a numerical value upon that human life? You know, someone tried to do this years ago, and it looked at, okay, if you just took a person who's past an average man of 150 pounds, and, and you took away, stripped away all of, the inor, all of the organic compounds, and you're left with just simply the chemical contents, and maybe trace uh, precious metals and things like that, but the chemical contents, all the inorganic materials of a man, in the 1930s, that value would have been 98 cents, Right? So this study was done years and years ago. Well, you, you increase it through inflation to the 1960s, $3.50. Well, the 70s, $5.60. You know, inflation, man, it's really shooting through the roof. You know, you kind of compound that to today, and you can imagine what it would be in today's uh, dollar amount. But the point is, if you simply boil down the worth of a man to whatever the chemical contents would be, trace metals, trace chemicals that would have some sort of a value, you wouldn't be very encouraged about the, the value of a certain and a particular person. But as we'll see today, again, in the midst of our sermon series, Foundations, when we're looking at today specifically fall, or man, fall and restoration, we're looking at the fact that mankind matters, an individual person, you matter to God far more than what you could add up to be the value of your chemical contents. You matter to God because you were created in the image of God. You know, today we're going to look at Romans 5.19 is going to be our focal verse, but I want to back up a little before that and start reading in verse 17. And really, when we look at the entirety of chapter 5 of the book of Romans, chapter 4 as well, it talks about Abraham. And then we see this wonderful principle here in this just this passage in Romans chapter 5, where it compares the old Adam, that is Adam, our spiritual forefather, the first human being, as we see the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 1, and what is known sort of theologically in the great themes of the Bible as the new Adam, that is Jesus Christ, the one who through coming in flesh, wrapping himself in flesh, God the Son, became the new Adam and set humanity on a brand new course. It says here, backing up in verse 17 of Romans chapter 5, for if by one man's offense, that's speaking again of Adam, and the offense that is bringing sin into the world when he disobeyed God, of course, we've been infected with that disease, if you will, known as sin. We've inherited guilt from Adam, but yet we participate in it as well. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. So through disobedience, bringing sin into the world, that means that death now reigns in these mortal bodies. That means that we will die. Death and taxes are the only certainties. Death and taxes. We will die. And if nothing is done about our relationship with God, we'll get to that towards the end of the sermon. If nothing is done about that relationship with God, then we will not only die a physical death, but eternal separation from God, not in heaven, but a place called hell. For if by one man's offense, death reigns through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace, more than we deserve. Remember, mercy is God withholding from us the very things that we deserve because of sin. Grace is, is the opposite side of that coin and that he lavishes upon us those blessings that we do not deserve. So if death reigns through one, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace, and of it, the gift of righteousness will reign in life 
through the one, and you oftentimes will see in your translations, capital O, that is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. So one of the most incredible truths of all of Scripture is the fact that if, as Jesus says, we repent and believe, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. One of the greatest truths in all of Scripture is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he says we become righteous because not anything well, what we've done, but because what he has done. We become perfect, pure, holy, sinless, blameless in the eyes of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Continue on in verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. So again, because Adam sinned, we were all infected through sin. And we, by the way, we are, we are not uh, inactive participants. We participate in sin, of course, ourselves. That judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Again, not because God is mean or he's up there, he's a tyrant sitting upon a cloud in heaven looking to when he might strike us with a lightning bolt. It's because he is holy. And his holiness, his otherness, his separatedness, and his perfection is something we can't comprehend. And it demands that sin be dealt with. Because of that, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man, again, the capital M, one man's righteous act, the death on the cross, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Again, one of the greatest turns of phrases that really does explain in, in sort of simple terms justification is just if I'd never sinned. It's as if your record of offenses has been wiped clean because of Jesus Christ and his death. Again, and here we, here we go, verse 19, as we focus here on our focal verse. Four. As by one man's disobedience, that is Adam bringing sin into the world, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. Looking again throughout the great scope of all time and history of those who were to place their faith in Jesus Christ Again, he exchanged, we exchanged with him our sin, and he exchanged with us his righteousness. So the very first thing that we're going to see in the first half of our focal verse here is very simply the fall, the fall of mankind. You can take that very first part of that verse, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The very first thing I want to take a look at is that word man. What does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be made, as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 1, to be made in the image of God? If you'd like to stick your finger there in Romans chapter 5 and flip with me to Genesis chapter 1, you can do that or you can just follow along as I read, either one that you prefer. Then God said in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, in the midst of the creation story, here we see he's created the world and now he comes to the crown jewel of his creation. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image. We see here again in the very first chapter of the book of the Bible, we see a reflection of the triunity of God. Let us make man in our image. Some will say, well, this is just the plural of majesty. My question would be, I think, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I think the plural of majesty that we see in other parts of ancient literature is a reflection of the fact that God revealed himself from the earliest of times as a triune God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What does that mean? We're going to break that down as we go a little bit further. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. All of these things of which God created, he said, this is the crown jewel of my creation. And it's not just that this one's a little bit better than the rest of it, so you know this one will have authority. This one is completely different. This is man made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves upon the earth. We were made in the image of of God, the great word imago Dei, image of God. You know, it's really interesting how the similarities that we in fact see with the tabernacle. Some of the same language in the original language, some of the, the, the derivative words, the root words are similar when it speaks to this concept. Why is that? Because the tabernacle was the very presence of God on earth. It is where God appeared and he imaged himself, if you'll do the grammatical backbend with me, through the tabernacle. In the same way, we become the very reflection of presence of God upon earth. So it's not just something that man has. The image of God is something that man is. We both mirror and we represent God. In the very simplest of terms, when we think about what does it mean that mankind bears the image of God, in the most simple terms, it's this. To be made in the image of God means that we reveal God and we represent him to the world. That, that, we, that we are like God and we represent him in the world. So that's in the simplest of terms. To be made in the image of God means that we are like God and we represent him in the world. If we kind of break that down a little bit more, what that means is that if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the incommunicable attributes of God. Those things like his omniscience, meaning that he is, he is, uh, he, he is all-knowing. His omnipotence, meaning that he is all-powerful. His omnipresence, meaning that he is everywhere equally at all times. Those things are incommunicable in the sense that we don't share those with, to any great degree with God. We do not share those at all with God. Those things that are communicable attributes of God are those things that in part he shares with us or we share with him. So to be made in the image of God means in part that we bear those in some part, those communicable attributes. Those things about God that separate us from animals, separate, us from, separate him from animals as well. Moral, spiritual, mental capacity, relational ability, those, those, those uh, ability to feel and have feelings and emotions, those things. But in the simplest of terms, to be made in the image of God simply means that we are like God and we represent him in the world. We represent him in the world. You see, here's the thing. Another thing that we, we understand about the image of God and being created in his, his image and being the crown jewel of his creation is he did not need mankind. He didn't need creation, but he did not need mankind for anything. Yet he created us and he created us 
for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. You know, one of the great works, uh, one of the great works of writing that, that was used to teach some of the great themes of Scripture to, to children in the history of the church was the Westminster Catechism. And the very first question, the, re- the, the way it would work is that they would ask a question and give an answer. It was a question and answer format of how they would teach some of these great themes. And you may have heard this as well. The very first question is this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what that means is no matter what the world tells us about how we're going to find pleasure forevermore, how we're going to find happiness, how we're going to find that joy that the Bible speaks about, which again isn't just the happiness that that kind of is back and forth on fleeting pleasures, and it's just kind of... Uh, tosses and turns with, with, with the tosses and turns of the day. That sort of joy is found in the presence of God. You know, I love C.S. Lewis. He used a great illustration years ago in one of his books in which he said, you know, man is, in, is like a car. I'm going to greatly paraphrase what he says. Man is like a car and the, and the car's creator is God. The creator, just like the engineer of that car, has engineered that car to, r- to run on a certain type, as he said, of course, Uh, In England, a certain type of petrol, which we would say a certain type of fuel or gas. It doesn't matter what we were to put in the gas tank of that car, that car would not run because it was not designed to run upon whatever it is that we would put in the tank of that car. It was designed to run upon gasoline, upon fuel. And he says, in the same way, the human being was created to find its joy, his or her joy, in the very presence of God and feasting on the very presence of God, spending time in the presence of God. That is where we are to find satisfaction and joy. And it doesn't matter what we try to do. It doesn't matter how we try to scratch that itch of satisfaction and joy of which we seek. It doesn't matter. Eventually, it will run out because we were not created to run upon and find joy in the things of this world. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know, one of the other great truths as well about this is that when we think about may being made in the image of God, it means that you have infinite worth and value. If we can circle back to right where we started, you have infinite worth and value. Here's a story that was told of two families in Cairo, Egypt, and years and years and years ago, and they shared uh, the building, the responsibility of a water well, digging a water well. Well, a fight ensued, an argument ensued over the two families of who had done the most work and what the bill should cost and this sort of thing. And one thing led to another, and the fight escalated to the point where they were actually firing weapons. And in fact, nine people from each family, 18 people in total, lost their life over a bill at the end of the day that cost 55 cents. 55 cents. This was years and years ago. Three cents when you break it down. Three cents. When we think about that, we say the life of a human being must have more value than that, and it absolutely does. It has infinite worth and value because we were created in the image of God. 
And this is why evangelical Christians for years and years, decades and centuries have believed that the, that the human life has worth from conception to death. We believe we were created in the image of God. And we think about it even more when we break it down to your individual le- level. You can know with certainty that you matter. It doesn't, your worth and value is not based upon your usefulness to society. It is not based upon your usefulness to your particular family. It is not based upon your usefulness to your place of work. It is not based upon your looks or how much money you make, how athletic you are, or if you, if you have some sort of presence as a YouTuber, whatever it may be, that in this day and age, in any day and age in the past, that we have measured our worth and value, each and every one of you and each and every person beyond the walls of this church has infinite worth and value because we were created in the image of God. Genesis 1, the second part of that verse says, male and female, he created them. This is what's known, again, in these great sort of doctrine of Scripture as what we would call complementarianism. I know it's kind of a big word, and it's, it's, a, it's a real thick word, but it simply means that we were created differently as man, men and women, yet, yet we complement one another. And in so, it says, male and female, we cre- he created them. We reflect the very character of God and the very nature of God, the triune God, in a few ways. Harmonious relationships that we see throughout the persons of the Trinity. Equality and personhood and importance, but yet we see in the Trinity different roles and authority. We see this also reflected in marriage, and we see this reflected in our world, of course, as well. And also when we think about it, Uh, when we think about the image of God as a whole, the image of God in mankind was distorted but not completely lost in the fall. Genesis 9-6, again, after the Noahic flood and and God wiped out the world, Genesis 9-6 says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he made man. So even after the fall of mankind, we still retained a portion of the image of God that that again is completely restored, we will see through faith in Jesus Christ. So we focus on in that very first statement of of Romans 5, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We looked at, man, what does it mean to be a man, a woman, to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? But then we think about in the second part, or a couple of other words in in that verse as well, the first part of that verse, we see disobedience. And sinners. What does it mean? Let's take a look at sin. What does that mean? I love this definition of sin here by, again, Wayne Grudem, who we call upon quite often in this sermon series. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. In act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral, yeah, the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And again, as we look at Romans chapter 1, the Bible says that mankind is without excuse because those things, that moral law of God reflecting the very law of God has been written on the heart of mankind. And so no one can say, well, I didn't have a clue what God wanted me to do. Yes, that person, that particular person might not have the very law of God, the very Bible right in front of them, but there is some trace of that that is written upon the heart and we understand in some degree, in what's reflected in our world, what is right and what is wrong. So when we think about sin, what does it mean? First of all, we have inherited guilt. We have inherited guilt through Adam. His sin was imputed to us. 
meaning that we, when we are born, it is on our ledger sheet. Psalms 51 verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in, and in sin my mother conceived me. It is on our ledger sheet because of the fact that our forefather is Adam. But guess what? We participated in it too. We lack any spiritual good. Romans 7, 18 says this, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul is reflecting. This is post-saved uh, Paul. He's reflecting in Romans chapter 6 and 7. He's saying, the things which I want to do, I don't do. And those things that I don't want to do, I do. He's struggling with, again, sanctification that we all see in the life of every Christian. That even the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he sees that sin nature that still hangs around in him. Can you imagine, of course, before we have given our life to the Lord Jesus Christ? For to, will is, for, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. He said it is a daily struggle. Can you imagine even before we come to faith in Christ? All are equally guilty before God as well. Galatians 3.10 says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everything who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We are all guilty because of sin. Now, some will say, well, sin is sin, or all sin is the same. Really, that's not quite as precise. That is not precise as it needs to be. Yes, it is true that all sin, one sin, makes us unholy and separate from God, but not all sin is sin. Some sin has more harmful consequences, simply have more harmful consequences. John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, again, this is the context of, of Jesus Christ being delivered, being delivered by Judas uh, to the authorities. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So not all sin is the same, but yes, one singular sin as small, quote unquote, small as we may think it is, separates us from a holy God because he is that. He is holy, perfect, and pure. When Christians sin, here's the wonderful thing as well what we think about. When Christians sin, our standing with God is unchanged because we were made perfect and pure and righteous in him. That relationship, we are not separated from him because of the sin. However, our fellowship is disrupted. And some of you have experienced that very thing. If we walk in sin, we know that we cannot continually walk in sin and, and, and not bear fruit. Otherwise, if we are walking in sin and we are not bearing fruit, we have to seriously question whether or not we have truly given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we've truly been saved. But there will be periods in life, unfortunately, where we are not walking in the word of God. We are not letting God sanctify us day by day. And we know that that sin, if we've truly given our life to Jesus Christ, does not separate us from him. We have not lost our salvation, as it were. But that fellowship with God becomes disrupted. It becomes strained. And also, our Christian life, the development of that Christian life is damaged and we're set back because we are not continuing to do our part. As God is sanctifying us, we're not doing our part to dig into God's word and as difficult as it may be at times to walk with him in obedience. Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the spirit of God. Do not grieve the spirit of God. What do we do? It's the same way, the same formula for how we came to faith in Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a wonderful truth, sort of a two-nature of this sort of concept in which 
when we have given our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin has been cleansed and forgiven, all sin, past, present, and future, but yet we have this strained fellowship restored when in the same way we clear ourselves, we come and we confess before God. And when we do that, we, we don't just say flippantly in sort of a roundabout way, God, I know I've sinned, and can you, can you cleanse me of that sin? When we come, we must come with the spirit of David in, in Psalm chapter 15, 51, 5, and say, God, I've sinned against you. Would you restore me? Would you restore me? I love a great story. This one guy was telling one time of he had never washed his own laundry before. Went off to college, never washed his own laundry. So his mom made him, sent him with a canvas bag that he could put all his clothes in, Right? He could put all his clothes in. She gave some instructions to him and said, okay, put all your clothes in this, this duffel bag. At, at, at the beginning of the week, fill it all up with your dirty clothes. And then at the end of the week, take the, take the duffel bag and, and wash it. You know, put it in the laundry and wash it. Well, we obviously know anyone that's done laundry, she meant take the clothes out and wash them. Well, he just threw the whole duffel bag in it with all the clothes in there. And of course, luckily, before he wasted his money, someone else, someone another one of the college students saw him and said, I think you're supposed to take all of those out. And absolutely, that's what he was supposed to do. But you think about that as well. When that fellowship, of course, is strained in that Christian life, that development of our Christian life, that Christian walk, we've set ourselves back. We are to confess our sins. He's faithful and just. We are to look and we're to say, God, reveal to me, Holy Spirit, reveal to me where I have gone wrong in life. And Lord, help me to be contrite. And Lord, help me to put a new foot forward and to walk in your word as you continue to cleanse me and you continue to set me back on the right path. And here we go again. When we think about we think about sin in the life of the believer, but let's, let us think again about God and his nature and the need to punish sin as we transition into our, our, our second and final point. You see, God punishes sin because his glory, his holiness... And his justice demands that he does. If we flip back in your Bibles, it may just be one page back, but it's a couple chapters back. Uh, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. He's saying there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. God has, has gone beyond that, and he has completely revealed his plan of redemption that he has laid in place from the foundation of the world, that it is beyond the law and the keeping of the law. In fact, Galatians, the book, a whole book of Galatians, Paul tells us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the law was given never to save a person if a person could perfectly adhere to the law. The law was given so that it would show us how destitute we are and, and serve as a mirror to show us how much in need of a Savior we truly are. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace, sins wiped clean, not because of anything we've done, but because of what his, his grace has done in our life. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, he has bought us back from the slave market of sin in which we were dead and slaves. For whom God, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. So Jesus Christ became a big word, propitiation. It means a sacrifice and appeasement of the wrath of God. You say, oh gosh, I don't like that word, right? We don't like that in our modern sensibilities. We don't like that word, wrath. 
Wrath simply means when we translate it through the filter of our own life, we start thinking that God must be capricious and impatient, and God must be this type of person that really flies out the handle and just act with wrath. The biblical concept of wrath is, again, a holy, righteous, and just God that cannot just sweep sin under the rug and forget about it. It must be dealt with. So Jesus Christ came as a propitiation and by his blood on the cross through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, God had passed over, previously passed over the sins that were committed to demonstrate at this present time, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith. In Jesus Christ. God couldn't just sweep sin under the rug. You know, I've talked about this before. When we go out and look at pigs wallowing in a pigsty, they're not just wallowing in nice, clean mud. Someone hasn't just like one of those sort of uh, mud games sort of concepts, just kind of taken a backhoe out there and scooped up some mud and put some nice, clean water on it, and it's just nice, clean mud. They're wallowing around in mud in their own feces, but they don't know. They're happy. When we think about our lives, too, we think about how could God... Uh, have wrath against sin? How could God uh, not just sweep sin under the rug? Why must God deal with sin and why must he be just? Because we don't understand the sin in our lives, the severity of our sin, like it, tre- like it, like it comes in conflict with a holy God. But thanks be unto God, praise be unto God, that because of his love and his glory and his justice, He provided a way that our sin might be taken away. He provided a way that we might be forgiven and cleansed, and that was through the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only was the first point of our sermon fall, looking at the first part of the verse of Romans 5.19, but the second part, the second glorious part is restoration. Again, Romans 5 verse 19 says this, So also by one man, that is Jesus Christ, one man's obedience many will be made righteous. You see, the incarnate son, he was the perfect representation of everything that man should have been. He was the perfect representation of humanity. And in him and through him, humanity is fully restored. The image of God is fully restored through redemption in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but we all, With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're forgiven and we are cleansed. And the great truth of our life is not only that that we bear the image of God, Uh, Not only, even though that image has been distorted, is it restored in Jesus Christ? Not only when when God looks at us, are we righteous, pure, and perfect? Does he look at us and he sees Jesus Christ? But day by day in the process known as sanctification, he is conforming us more. He is making us in our daily life more and more the way that he already sees us. He looks at us and he sees Jesus Christ until that one great day we might be glorified. You see, let me, let me go again. Let me take this time again to talk with you about the good news, the gospel. And let me say to you, for those who may be sitting here today and have never received that gospel message, 
have never repented and believed and accepted Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, would you do it today? You see, again, we were created in the image of God. You matter unto God, each and every one of you, no matter what you think the world says about you, no matter what the world says about what it takes to matter and to have worth. You have infinite worth and value because you've been created in the image of God. However, mankind has fallen into sin. You are separated from God because of your sin. Not because of me, God's mean or ugly or a tyrant. It's because he is holy. And if there's nothing done about that sin, if there's nothing done about that separation, that you will die one day and you will spend eternity separated from God. But it doesn't need to be that way. God himself provided the way that you might be forgiven and cleansed, adopted into his family. You might be restored and you will have a certainty of heaven and you will have the abundant life as Jesus promised, John 10, 10 here on earth. And that is not by your own good works. That is not by your own effort. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it is by grace you were saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself so that no one can boast, but it is by the very grace of God. The question is, will you be one, as it says in Romans 10, 9, whoever, Romans 10, 9 through 11, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you be the person today who calls upon the name of the Lord? Will you do exactly what Jesus tells you to repent, turn away from your old way of life and turn to him in belief that he is the son of God on earth come to save you from your sin? Here in just a few moments, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back again and we're going to enter into a time of what we call response. And when we do, I want to give you the opportunities I do each and every week that this might be the day, if the Lord has been working upon your life, that you do that very thing that Jesus said he called you to do, to repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray today that those that are here that do not know you, you as their Savior, that this would be the day that they would turn away from their old way of life and turn their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, help those of us that are here, whether it be uh, even the, the believers that are here today. We have a hard time remembering because of the onslaught and the waves of the world that we matter greatly and, and infinitely unto you. Not because of anything we've done or achieved, but because we were created in your image. Lord, I pray also that we would go from this place and we would quit falling in line with the world and we would make... Uh, and we would quit valuing people based upon their worth and based upon their usefulness. But Lord, we would, we would value them because they are created in your image and you sent Jesus Christ to die for them. Lord, may that be the only valuation of any person that walks the face of this earth. In the name of Jesus, we do pray.